Hi everybody and welcome to um, the next in the Killaway Report and I want to wish everybody a good afternoon, a good evening and a good morning. I am extremely privileged today to introduce you to someone I call a good friend. His name is Gabriel Falco. Good morning, Gabriel. Good morning, Fran. Um, I know it's evening over there for you, but it's morning here for us. So thank you for doing this for us at your time at night. My pleasure, my pleasure. And just before we get going so the audience knows who you are, what time did you start work this morning? Well, I start at a nice, relaxed 4.30 or 5 a.m. every day. All right, and then you finish at what time at night? Typically about 9.30, 10 o'clock. Yeah, see, for Australians, that's just unheard of. <laughs> and I, I'm not sure that most of them would be very happy at working those long hours, but um, it just goes to show who you are. So tell me a little bit about yourself for the audience. I know lots about you, but um, why don't you tell the audience who Gabriel is? Well, I'm uh, recently a proud Floridian resident. I now spend uh, most of my year in Florida, a place to where I've been coming since I've been about 16 years old, uh, when I started my involvement with equestrian sports. So I now live with my family and my four young children in Wellington, Florida, which is the equestrian epicenter of the world in winter, and uh, I'm involved in real estate and equestrian sports here. Well, of course, that, and that's just amazing because that's obviously two of my passions. Um, one, we won't talk about the real estate because you can do that for me when I come back over. But one of the things I wanted to talk to our audience about was my love of horses and the, and your equal shared love of horses. And by the way, congratulations! I saw that you've just been um, you've just been taken on um, in a new role, haven't you? I have. I just started with Equestrian Sotheby's International here in Wellington, uh, where I focus on equestrian properties here in Wellington, but I handle the area from Manalapan, which is an island, uh, barrier island off the coast, up to Jupiter Island, and from Palm Beach Island inland to Wellington, where we are here. So if I wanted to buy an, um, something for an equestrian to, to do something with horses, for example, at the level you're talking about, what would Sotheby's, what's the price range that you would be looking at? What's the average price of um, a really good property to hold one of these wonderful athletes? Uh, well, to hold a single athlete, you might be looking at three quarters of a million US dollars here on the super low side, right, uh, right in, in the Wellington area. And then really the sky's the limit. Properties have gone upwards of 35 million US dollars. But there are a lot of wonderful places between the $3 million mark and the $20 million mark. And that really has to do with the number of horses that uh, need to be housed and sure. the, how grand of a home someone wants. Well, apart from anything else, congratulations on that. I think it's terrific. So let's talk about what we want to do. Um, I have a passion um, for people um, that we can help with the technology, as you know. And before we get to what we want to do with the horses, I just wanted to share with you that Mika is now almost ready for market. And that, and I'll explain who she is in a sec, but that dreadful um, video that went out yesterday of the person committing suicide on TikTok, Mika would have blocked that. So what she is, is she's um, the first of um, a technology that works in real time online. So you would be able to give it to the kids and essentially it sits in their computer, in their devices, and it just sees exactly what they see. 
And so it would have um, sent up, a sh you know, something to say, do you really think this is something you should watch, etc.? Because it works inside their computer, protects their privacy at all times and if and sends mum and dad a, um, the same dashboard as it sends to them to say the risk is low, medium, high or urgent. But you have to talk to the kids. So that's something I know I spoke to you about before, but that'll be ready for release in about five weeks' time, which is pretty exciting. But back to my horses. That is exciting. Mm, what I, for the audience, what Gabriel and I are trying to put together and I will make happen now over the next um, six to 12 months is we want to take these wonderful horses. Um, for example, in Australia, I don't think most people realise that um, Edwina Tops Alexandra is a lady who grew up in Sydney. Her parents, I believe, lived for years in a street called Bobbin Head Road and she went to Pimble Ladies College where my daughter went and she's one of the top riders in the world of both male and female of the elite jumping. Would that be a fair description of her? That would be very fair. She's a, a, a fierce competitor and someone who is highly regarded. And something that's interesting in equestrian sports is there is no distinction between men and women. It's a level it's playing field. Agreed. And may, may the best horse person win. I agree totally. So having done that, and um, I come from a little town in Australia called Barrel, and I grew up with um, horses, elite horses. And so what Gabriel and I are talking about putting together is a project where we bring these elite athletes when they're finished jumping um, to work with kids with disabilities. So do you want to talk about what you understand it to be and then I'll come back and help? Sure. Um, I'd love to. It, you know, what, what has kind of come to mind during this time is how special the relationship between horse and rider, or more broadly, horse and human it is. It's this wonderful symbiotic relationship. And because horses can't order their food in on Amazon or from Whole Foods, as many of us do here in the States, uh, they require human care. Uh, there has been really a, lo a lot of latitude and some great exceptions made for uh, the care of horses and equestrian sports because the horses are the stars, they are the athletes, but they depend on humans to care for them. And I think in this really tough time of uh, lockdowns and pandemics and a lot of craziness and hyperactive media, uh, for those of us who have been fortunate enough to be exposed to these wonderful animals, uh, it's a huge luxury to have that consistent relationship that goes beyond just feeding and riding. It's really just uh, a very enriching, special relationship where these uh, majestic animals can really provide some nurturing and richness to one's life uh, that is not available anywhere else. And, you know, Fran, when you, you first mentioned it to me, I started uh, looking at different ways that horses have been used, and I was surprised to find all of the different examples uh, of equine therapy. You know, horse therapy uh, would be the layperson's or common term for it. And there are horses that go into hospitals, and you would think there's big, strong animal would just be like a bull in a china shop. And there's a wonderful story about a stallion that goes in and 
uh, is just the most docile, loving creature to people in hospitals. And it's quite a spectacle to see this 17-hand horse or 16-hand horse, which is a really large 1,500-pound animal, walking down the corridor of a hospital. And people make those special exceptions because there is that much of a positive effect by people interacting with these animals. So whether it's someone with a a critical illness, somebody uh, who is on the spectrum somewhere and just communicates with animals in a way that we don't quite understand yet, but the animals seem to understand uh, very well. Uh, You know, there are all sorts of interesting things that I became aware of and very sort of wonderful examples where the efficacy of equine therapy is staring you right in the face. Oh, look, I thank you for that, Gabriel. And I think if I can now add the other half to it, which of course is um, that I bring all of the technology to the table and a couple of things that have changed since we last spoke. And that is that the one thing that I was always going to be concerned about that I think I may now be able to overcome is that when the person with a disability, um, particularly those who are locked in with the more difficult disabilities, they engage the horse. So the horse and the person develop this fond relationship that actually works for both of them because the horse is actually missing its jumping and its lifestyle where it's been pampered in a different way to the pampering it's about to receive. So one of the things we've been able to achieve now is to work out how to take um, a person's noise Um, who are locked in and can't speak, and we turn that into their personal speech. And so one of the things, I've been approached now a couple of times about doing it for dogs, um, their particular noises and their barks and the way cats meow and stuff like that. But instead of doing that, because to me, while that might be important to some people, I would rather take the reaction of the horse. And so essentially when the person is away, there's two things that can happen. They go back to their home to be looked after. So by the simple push of a button with Frazzle, they can send a message through to the horse and the horse can actually respond. And over time, I take that noise and make the noise the response from the horse. So that essentially when they're by themselves and they're not feeling great or they're lonely or they're isolated, they've still got the content of the horse. That's really interesting. You know, when I first started to find out a little bit about Frazzle and about your interest in horses, I was trying to think of how to get the two together. And, um, you know, something that's interesting about being in the area that we are and spending so much time at an equestrian operation is that you can almost view it as a laboratory. You can view it kind of Uh, as a mini system, the way people interact, the schedules. And, you know, it just seems like a wonderful opportunity to put together people who are on the spectrum, who are unable to communicate with humans um, the way most of us do. Yep, but they can talk to the horse. Yep, agreed. Yeah, and and observe observe that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, interaction almost like, almost like a farm laboratory. Exactly. And we do it in such a way that they don't even feel it's happening. And to be able to open up that communication, I think, is exciting. So from my perspective, we're ready to go ahead with that. So that's great. So tell me about your son. Uh, Well... One of my children, uh, my uh, 10-year-old son, 
who was, I might tell the audience was, is very cheeky. Yeah, keep going, sorry. He's, he's quite cheeky. He's he quite is. cheeky. Yeah. Um, so uh, he was born deaf, and um, through technology, we cured that. So he can now hear, and he's so cheeky that he said, just because I hear you doesn't mean I'm listening. <laughs> but um, so when, when he was born, like any parent who has a child that's born with a significant deficit, you know, it, it appears like the end of the world. Uh, you know, there's this insurmountable, uh, insurmountable obstacle and everything is, uh, you know, qu- qu- quite dark. And then, uh, uh, you know, it's because of fear and lack of understanding and lack of information. It's not something that we all like to talk about. Certainly nobody had ever discussed having a deaf child with me. Um, but pretty early on, we're introduced to cochlear implants, which is quite a miraculous technology that involves uh, a moderate surgery where an electronic array and a receiver is implanted inside the head and a stimulation array of electrodes goes into the cochlear, which is the snail shaped structure inside the ear that enables us to hear. So we opted for this technology in a real leap of faith and there was a big sort of uh, front loading process where we had to give our son a lot of, of training to, to help him understand sound. And now he speaks perfectly. He's 10 years old. He was first implanted when he was nine months on one side, then 16 months on the other side. It's called bilateral implants. It's amazing. And he has, yeah, he has these processors on the outside of uh, his head. They wrap around the ear. They look like a hearing aid. And um, my next son, who's younger than him, when he sees the, uh, the processors running out of battery, they, they will flash red, indicating they need a battery change. And my youngest son says, oh, Jax, you have robot ears. You have robot ears. <laughs> you know, because they're, they're blinky. So he thinks it's really wonderful. Mm. And uh, you know, my son with the cochlear implants lip reads very well. And you know what was this huge, insurmountable obstacle that was the end of the world and this terrible, devastating event is... It's a non-issue now. Uh, when he's not wearing them, like underwater, he's not wearing the external processors underwater or in heavy rains or, you know, when he's perhaps at the beach. Uh, I might not be aware of it, but the other kids are. They don't, you know, they'll make sure that he can see their lips or they'll hand signal to him. Uh, so it's, it's really wonderful to see how technology has been used to Oh, look, I I think it's... Gabrielle, it's fabulous. Just before we have to finish, I wanted to ask you about one part of your history Um, because normally when I come over to do these kinds of things um, and we get started, we've usually got to worry about film crews and all that sort of stuff. But tell me how what Habitat was and how you built it because your Habitat for Humanity was amazing. And then I noticed that you've got a lot of background in filming and stuff, so I'm happy with that. But tell me about Habitat for Humanity. Sure. Well, Habitat for Humanity is a pretty well-known charity, and I've been fortunate enough to have a few careers. And 
been in a position to do some pro bono work for a, a bunch of good causes. Habitat for Humanity is one of them. Um, for many years, I built fancy homes in the Hamptons, uh, the eastern end of Long Island. Everybody has probably heard of the Hamptons, where the, a lot of rich and famous and important people and uh, people who also want to be very low-key go to vacation. Um, so. Habitat for Humanity wanted to do something for the locals around there and the underprivileged, and uh, myself and many other fellow builders uh, all participated in gathering materials, donating materials, and donating uh, a large amount of labor so that uh, we could renovate two uh, lower-income homes and build another six. And uh, that was some time ago. Since that time, they've probably added two dozen more more homes in that area. So w- wonderful, wonderful cause. Wonderful. I Thank you for sharing that with us. I just thought from an Australian point of view, um, obviously Americans would know it, but for my audience in Australia, they had, wouldn't necessarily know what it is. So thank you. But Gabriel, can I say um, what a privilege it's been for me to be able to introduce you to my people um, who listen to us. And um, I want to say just a simple thank you. You're an amazing person and I can't wait to get started on our project. And we'll tell the listeners, we'll keep our listeners up to date and we'll give them a, an update every couple of months and let them know where we're up to. Oh, well, likewise. It was really a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with you tonight, Fran. Well, thank you. And I'd like to say um, good afternoon, good evening and good morning. And thank you to everyone for listening. <laughs>